What's up, everybody? Welcome to Show Me the Meaning Wisecracks Movie Podcast. My name is Jared, and today I'm joined with Show Me the Meaning crew. We got our resident Marvel expert, Matthew. How's it going, Matthew? Hail Hydra. <laughs> As and, Steve Rogers uh, would say. Yes, and we got Lux. What's up, Lux? Hey, everyone. How's it going? Cool. And today we are talking about a movie that, you know, made a couple dollars this weekend. We're talking about Avengers Endgame, the 2019 movie directed by the Russo brothers, starring Chris Evans and Robert Downey Jr. Uh, As always, we're going to go around and get first impressions. I assembled this team today because I think that uh, we've got probably the, I would say you two are probably the most invested into the MCU uh, of the uh, Wisecrack crew. So really excited to hear what you guys think. So let's start with... Let's start with Matthew. Matthew, what did you think of this movie? You've seen it twice now, right? I have, yeah. So this is one of my favorite of the MCU movies, but I do have some issues with it. I don't think it is as good as Infinity War because Mm. Infinity War was much more focused. From the first scene to the last, you have Thanos trying to get the stones. Like It was that laser focus on us, that one plot that took the whole MCU in one movie and brought it all together. Whereas this, the three-act structure felt like three very different films. And the first act where it's really just all the heroes depressed from Thanos having snapped them out of existence, uh, it was a little slow, a little meandering, a lot of scenes felt superfluous that could have been taken out, cut down for a shorter, better movie overall. But once they get to the time heist, they use that time travel conceit in such a good way, not just to like go back in time and fight a weaker Thanos without the gauntlet, but to like really revisit on behalf of the audience the whole franchise leading up to this point to revisit those emotional moments and then you have the characters getting their final moments of character development in surprising ways with tony meeting his father and steve seeing peggy again like it was just the perfect prelude to what was one of the greatest battles ever put to screen like that final third of the movie (laughs) it's going to go down alongside Pelennor Fields and Thermopylae and Scarif is just one of the best battles in all of cinema, especially when you have Captain America wielding Mjolnir for the first time, and then it's just him alone against all the armies of Thanos, and he's still going to fight them, and all of a sudden, every single hero from the entire MCU comes to his back, and he finally, after all these films, gets to deliver the iconic Avengers Assemble, just (laughs) one of the greatest moments in cinematic history. Oh, yeah. The whole theater got tingles in their spines. Everyone was just like so into it. So uh, one more question before we go to Lux. Was there anything in particular that you were expecting from this finale that you didn't get or something that surprised you? Because I know you probably were putting a lot of thought into the possibilities and how they could end this. So did anything surprise you? Did anything disappoint you? The thing I was expecting, I talk about in the quick take from Infinity War, I expected them to continue with the moral philosophy questions that they were posing in those films. And I don't really think that they follow through on that. The end of Tony's character arc, of Steve's character arc, doesn't really see them uh, addressing those moral philosophy questions in the way that I had basically called that they were going to last year. Uh, Not Mm. that I think it was a bad ending in any way. uh, Just I was surprised. Yeah. Yeah, I actually noticed that as well. I was surprised, but not at all disappointed. Anyway, very cool. Lux, what would you think about the movie? Um, well, it's actually really interesting hearing what Matthew to say, because we have similar conclusions, i.e. that this is a very, very good Marvel movie, but apparently had very different paths to get there. Because this movie felt much more focused than Infinity War to me, in the sense that 
from step one, it was obviously building to one moment that you knew what it was and what it was going to be. And it was just, how do you get there? And how do you get there with the most energy possible? And I think they did a really good job of cultivating those moments. And even those sort of slower moments at the beginning really lent themselves to ramping up to this one 30 minute thing at the end, which was emotionally awesome. I think visually didn't love it. I think that fight choreography in mostly CGI environments tends to look like shit. And this was no exception. Um, the only, the, the better version of this is honestly an infinity war. Infinity war, I think did a much better job of choreography in CGI settings than this ending. But that said, because of all the work the rest of the movie does to like re-engage with the characters, the time heist really does a great job of this. A lot of the early, like people being sad by the end of the world stuff does a really good job of this. Obviously like just having seen what is it? 22 other movies that build to this did a really good job of helping with that. Such that even though the end kind of was like the sort of like fast cut anti-geographical CGI fighting bullshit that I hate, it was still like so emotionally resonant and effective. It got me like, you know what I mean? It got me there a hundred percent and I was hundred percent on board with all of it, even though there are things that ha- I watched a second time also. And there are things that like second time, like filmmaker, like production brain was just like jack off motion, throw up. But like, it still fucking works um, because of how much like emotional weight is created throughout the rest of the movie. And so as long as it works, I don't, I don't care. Um, that's mm-hmm. all that really fucking matters. And it gets, it, it's building to like a 30 minute stand up and cheer sequence and it earns and executes a 30 minute stand up and cheer sequence. And so I don't think you can really ask this kind of movie to do much more than that. Mm. And is there anything that surprised you about it? Anything that you thought they were decidedly not going to do that they did do? Uh, I mean, not really. This seemed, every, all this seemed fairly obvious from the end of infinity or I don't think there's anything really mm-hmm. particularly surprising. You know, I, 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 I'm definitely not engaged with a lot of the fan theories that were out there, but even just having seen headlines of other YouTube videos about how it seemed like months and months and months ago, people knew that they were going to go into the, uh, what, what do you call the Ant-Man? The quantum realm. The quantum realm. Uh, did that disappoint you or was it just, everyone knew it was just obvious. That was what they were going to do. Yeah, I mean, that's why that, that was the end of Ant-Man and the Wasp, like that. Oh, it, I didn't see that one. So I actually have not seen all 22 films. I've seen probably like 19 of them. Word. Well, I mean, still a hefty chunk. But yeah, I don't know. There was honestly nothing surprising about this movie. It just felt like it hit the beats it was trying to hit and hit them correctly and had the ending. If anything, I think, yeah, the thing Matthew said is probably the most surprising thing, which is like they didn't really have like a thematic mission statement running. But I honestly think that's kind of smart. Because this is the kind of movie that's so invested in its, like, big action set piece ending and sort of the emotional framework of that, that asking the audience to think too much about sort of the emotional and thematic congruences of stuff, I don't think it would hold up that effectively under that kind of scrutiny, to be honest, because it's too busy doing other shit. And so I think it was smart of them not to be like, hey, think about this movie a lot and these ideas. And instead it was just sort of like, enjoy and go with it. And it's like fan service in like the purest and best way. Um, the critique that it's just fan service, uh, I'll punt into the ocean and then shoot with a gun. Because <laughs> I think that's a nonsense argument. Uh, the fact these movies exist is fan service. It's crazy. The I think that it was, yeah, I think that it works really well by being like kind of hand wave. I mean, it, it, they have some oh, like reference to like how the time travel works. They're pretty hand wavy about it. They're pretty like, you get the themes, you know who these characters are, we're moving on. And I think that's smart because I think that in order to make as much happen as they need to to get that ending they want they didn't really have time to put in the scaffold to have like big emotional thematic ideological takes sure i totally agree i thought this movie was great i you know in the last podcast i think matthew you were on the infinity war podcast right yeah 
I think Austin or somebody had brought up that the Avengers movies were uh, an indicator of the death of cinema, which we got a lot of flack for. And I would like to propose an antithesis to that argument because this was one of the most exciting, emotional, theater-going experiences ever. Because, if anything, this is an argument for the theater experience because, oh, man— there will never be another movie experience where people are so emotionally invested. With over a decade of investment in these characters, the energy in the room was electric. And even though there were some things that I didn't entirely get because I haven't seen all of the movies, I mean, I really felt like, I don't know if you guys felt this way, but I felt like really high after leaving the movie. I almost got in my car and like almost like got in a wreck because, and, 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 and a lot of that is testament to how good the movie is and how well plotted it is and how good the performances are and how they hit those emotional beats so well. But another part of that is that you really do get caught in this sense of collective effervescence. Like it's like going to an evangelical church and being in a room with people speaking in tongues for an hour and you just get caught up in this grand sense of community and communal feeling and you just leave feeling like it was legitimately a spiritual moment. And you're not going to get that sitting at home watching your laptop, sitting at home watching it on TV by yourself. So, I mean, it was, yeah, I think you had even said in the chat, Lux, that that movie worked its audience. Yeah, it absolutely did. And it, I can, so I saw it twice, but full confession, uh, the second one I watched was a classic uh, Lux style uh, HD cam rip on Pornhub.com. Um, <laughs> and it, watching it in my laptop, like a lot of things still work and stuff, but watching the theater was so different because like you said, the audience was so ready to pop at every moment that like they'd hint that a thing was about to happen. You'd hear this murmur go through the crowd. The thing would start happening and people would like little, little like slips and gasps out. Then the thing would fully happen. Everyone just cheers and yells. And it was just like, it was more like being at like a wrestling show or a live sporting event than it was like being at a fucking movie. Um, Absolutely. Which is cool being, as hell. <laughs> far from being the death of cinema, this is a return to what cinema was before like the rise of television. Back when you had the Saturday morning matinee serials where it's, you know, a multi-part, you know, experience. And these are a 22-part serial. And so the reason people are so already emotionally invested going into this movie is because they saw the first 21 parts and now they want the payoff in just a standalone movie as great as some of those are most of my favorite movies are standalone still uh you don't have that emotional investment going in you don't have a 10-year preparation that you're finally getting payoff for right like killing yeah. the sacred deer just to pull a random movie is one of my favorite movies I've seen in theaters in years, but I didn't have nearly as big or huge a reaction to it just because there wasn't all of this like pre-established energy and shit attached to it. Um, yeah, like you I guys think... said, being being in a room full of people who have ten years of investment into this material, into these characters, and they're ready to, as Lux said, pop off at every moment. God, it is an emotionally exciting, draining, and profound experience. Yeah, it was really fucking cool. <laughs> <laughs> that that said, I still think I'd prefer like just to have the whole IMAX you know theater to myself. I've been in a few of those uh, opening night and no one else shows up, and I don't care that no one else is cheering or whatnot. Just a big screen like that, the theater going experience is still justified. Yeah, I would mean I would love to get a second viewing in a much more empty theater, but I think that seeing it with all those people is like a a very special thing like we've talked about i don't know if we talked about it here but i know we've talked about it just like in the writer's chat and stuff about like the death of the monoculture and how like game of thrones and the mcu is like all we have left as far as that goes really yeah. um and this was like a such a strong testament to the value 
like the aesthetic value of like monocultural objects that like it's not just like everyone's something to talk about, but the act of watching it with everyone, everyone's invested and attached to it is so much fun and so cool and so different than like when I like go to like a weird matinee of like a Korean movie no one's heard of or whatever. Yeah, it's a totally different experience. I will say that there was only one point where the audience interaction tipped the scale a little bit too far, and that was when Chris Evans said, Hail Hydra. There was a guy behind me who was, I think, laughing a bit too hard to the point where he was obviously congratulating himself for, quote, getting it, and uh, it got a little bit obnoxious. But other than that, man, I really felt like, you know that feeling? I almost feel like I had just gotten in a car accident with everybody in the, in this theater. You know, we were all, like, closer because of that experience. It was yeah. just so wild I bet that so could, cool. I bet the guy was laughing because he noticed that it looks just like the cell from Secret Wars, which is a cool reference, but who cares? <laughs> oh, yeah, no, that's definitely what he was congratulating himself about. I mean, that whole panel became a huge meme, and someone like me who hasn't read an actual comic in a very, very long time, at, I mean, I got it. Yeah. It's, it's crazy. God, I, people are the worst. Yeah. All right, guys, let's go into a recap. So after the devastation wrought by Thanos in Infinity War, the remaining Avengers team up with Captain Marvel to kill Thanos and use the Infinity Stones to bring everyone back. Problem is, Thanos already destroyed the stones. Five years later, the Avengers have been trying to move on in their post-Thanos world. Ant-Man is brought out of the Quantum Realm and informs them that time travel may be possible. Initially hesitant to risk the family life he's built, Tony Stark eventually perfects the science and, along with Captain America, leads the team to go back in time and take the Infinity Stones before Thanos can get them. When a glitch in her hardwiring causes the past version of Nebula to access present Nebula's memories, past Thanos becomes wise to the Avengers' plans. The Avengers retrieve all the stones, but lose Natasha in the effort. The Hulk uses the stones to bring back all the people Thanos killed, but seconds later, Nebula brings Thanos literally crashing into the present. Thanos' revitalized mission is to destroy all life and start anew. The revived Avengers come together and along with a Wakandan and Asgardian army take on Thanos' army in an epic all-out war. Right before Thanos is about to use the stones to kill all life, Tony steals them and snaps Thanos and his army out of existence, sacrificing himself in the process. Needing to return the stones to their respective times, Captain America goes back in time but opts not to return. Instead, he stays in the past and grows old with Agent Carter. End of movie. We've all seen the headlines in the news of how someone lost their life in an act of cold-blooded murder. And while it's sad and grabs your attention, most people go on with their day without giving it another thought. But have you ever stopped to think about the life of the person at the center of the news story? They were more than just a headline or a statistic. They were someone's loved one or friend. I'm Mike Morford, and my podcast, The Murder of My Family, dives into some of those stories to help listeners get to know the person who was lost and how their death affected those closest to them. Listen to The Murder of My Family everywhere you listen to podcasts. There are well over 100 episodes to binge on now. All right, guys, so uh, let's first talk about Thanos and the way that they treated Thanos. I actually, I'm in, I'm in the same boat as Matthew and Lux. I really was expecting them to continue with this discussion of a kind of utilitarian consequentialist ethic versus deontology. I expected him to, first of all, not the present one, not die immediately in the beginning, but I really liked that they did that. And I expected him killing Gamora to like to really fuck him up for the rest of the movie and cause him to do stuff. But 
they kind of they turned him into a fatalist. And I really like how even when he arrives in the present and tells Nebula to go get the stones for him, he's always just waiting because he believes that now things are predetermined and therefore inevitable. And I think this was really powerful. I think that it was really, really effective. It also works in contrast to Doctor Strange's 14 in million, 14 million in one chance thing, because whereas one faction, Thanos, will fall into arrogant self-assurance, the other will persevere even when the odds are horrible. And that's what we all go to the movies to see in our heroics. And um, yeah, I thought it was really smart. What do you guys think about Thanos? I mean, I'm always a fan of a structuring absence. Um, I was kind of hoping, fingers crossed, that Thanos would be done by the end of Act 1. Um, and they did me one better and killed him before Act 1 even started. Killed him in the prelude. Yeah. And I love that. Uh, I think that a structuring absence is a lot more fun uh, than a big bad in a lot of cases. I think they did a really good job of, like, getting out of the mix, let us hang out in the world of the Avengers, the Avengers doing Avenger things, and then we can bring him back later. Um, I thought it was really smart, and I thought it did a really good job of just being, like, this movie's not really about Thanos, right? This movie's about the Avengers and the things that they do. Infinity War was very much about Thanos and his choice and things he was doing. Um, but now Thanos, you know, I'm inevitable and whatever. He's this fatalist sort of force of nature. They have to deal with it. And it's about them. It's focused on them. And I think that's really smart storytelling. Um, I think a structural absence really, a structuring absence rather, really does enable you to sort of do that in a more effective way than just like having him, you know, in the story, but off screen or whatever. So with Thanos, I think his fatalism is actually coming from a misreading of how time travel works in this universe, which is understandable because the first time I watched it, I wasn't really uh, getting what the time travel mechanics in the movie were. Uh, I thought they were literally going back in time within their own universe. Uh, so Thanos, if he thought the same thing, he would have said, okay, this is what I have to do in order to make this past slash future version of myself, you know, get the stones, save the universe. But they mentioned something uh, almost offhand, just like technical jargon would seem like, called the Deutsch Proposition. And this is basically saying that if you want to travel in time, you can go to a past version of a different parallel universe, but you can't actually go into the past of your own universe. And if you read the movie that way, it all makes perfect narrative sense. So... This Thanos is from a different universe, and his universe is never going to have, like, the snapping happen now. So he wasn't inevitable. His fatalism is absolutely wrong. Yeah, can I be a little bit of a nerd? Because that's not exactly what the Deutsch Proposition is. Please, absolutely. The Deutsch Proposition, right, is this idea... So the Deutsch Proposition is a response to the grandfather paradox. The idea that you can't go back in time, because if you kill your grandpa, then you die. But... Then people say there's this quantum thing. Well, all that happens is a, a timeline where you go back in time and kill your grandpa, and there's that timeline, there's one where you don't. That creates what's called the many worlds problem, which sort of is this issue of, like, how to sort of determine what, like, how you understand time movement through space and time in a world where we're constantly splitting everything off. But what the Deutsch proposition says is that much like anything else, time travel and your behavior within it is probabilistic in a quantum sense, which is to say... It has no set outcome, and you can never really quite tell what the probability of a thing is, such that when you time travel back in time, there's a probabilistic outcome that you do kill your grandfather, but there's also one that you don't. Um, and because of that, we can view time travel as sort of all that happens is you go back in time, you kill your grandfather, come back, you're in the timeline where, probabilistically speaking, he didn't die, but you're just back. Um, and there's actually been weird tests where like things like that have actually happened, where like they've sent electrons to like interact with things and then like move forward in time and they are changed even though the thing the condition that they interacted with hasn't changed 
It's very crazy. But it's all about shifting from a determinist framework of time travel, A leads to B leads to C, even if you mix up the letters in order, to a probabilistic one that's based on sort of quantum mathematics rather than uh, traditional linear mathematics. I also, despite that big tangent, do not care about the time travel in this movie at all. <laughs> but the movie yeah. definitely cares about the time travel. I don't think movie. so, like, man. I don't it, think... it calls out every other you know movie that deals with time travel like no they got it all wrong that's not how it really works you know we're going to shit on them for it yeah i just think that's a bit i think what they're shitting on them for more at least to me is like these movies waste all this time explaining this time travel that doesn't really make sense when you poke at it a lot we're just gonna rattle off some jargon say they're dumb and move on and they use it narratively very well like i said yeah the like... narrative effect of it is very good i just think that the you know it's like one of those things where like like looper is a really good example of this it's a movie that has time travel and uses it to great narrative success but the mechanics of time travel aren't the story of the movie. And so it sort of hand waves them away. And I think this movie, less so, but to an extent, does the same thing. Whereas Looper, for me, I think the mechanics were such like an itch under my mind that I just couldn't enjoy the movie because of it. Oh, but they tell you not to worry about it in the diner. Like, don't worry about it. I worry about it. He's like, don't, he says, don't worry about it. Um, but yeah, I think that, yeah, this movie did hit a kind of better middle ground where like, if you want to do a deep dive, the science is pretty there. But it also goes using pretty clear flags of, like, this has, doesn't have to be your concern right now. Which is smart. The movie does that with a lot of things. I think it's really fucking cool. Agreed. Yeah, I mean, e- even in other parts. So, for example, they they say that they were unable to bring Natasha back with a snap. There are all these times where they're basically, like, waving, or, waving off, like you said earlier, if there is a part of the plot that seems like it could potentially raise questions. They address it quickly with a line like, oh, you know, I tried to bring her back with a snap, but it wouldn't happen because they still want to maintain the emotional weight of that scene and stuff like that. And I think the time travel works similarly, where they're going to throw some terms at you that may justify the way that they're dramatizing the time travel. But at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. They're just trying to tell the best story possible. So with respect to Natasha, I actually have some issues with that scene. Because Let's as go. soon as her and Clint get to Vormir, there's only one way that can play out. Because he's the one that has a family that he lost, that he has the potential to reunite with him. And they're both best friends. Neither is going to deliberately kill the other like Thanos did Gamora. So you know they're both going to try to be the one to self-sacrifice. You know it's ultimately going to have to be her. Uh, it's just there was no tension in that scene because there was no other way it could have resolved except for the way that it did. Oh, see, I big disagree. I actually would have resolved it the other way, and I thought it was totally possible to do that because, like, because then he I, would have been giving up something more. Yeah, I, yeah, exactly. He's giving up not just that, but his family. He's also like instead of the story being woman has to die to redeem guy through a temper tantrum, and his family died and murdered a bunch of people. He comes to realize that he did a bad thing and he needs to die to save the world. Instead of, like, living in his, like, getting a free, a get-out-of-jail-free card for, like, killing, like, 40 Asian men or whatever. I think that there is, like, a moral ethical component and one that reduces Black Widow to less of a sort of piece of Hawkeye's story, which is crazy because of how much more she's done than Hawkeye. <laughs> really bizarre choice. Um, I think it's really possible. I like the way they did it. I thought it was good. And I thought it was strong and it went well and the scene was really cool. But it didn't feel as inevitable to me, I guess, Maddie's making it out to me because I really thought that they were going to go the other way with it because that felt in my mind, to be the potentially more satisfying. But I also had problems with that scene uh, if we want to get into some really deep film nerd color stuff. Sure. Go f- go for it. So, Infinity War, there's a really good Twitter, Twitter thread about this. I couldn't find it this morning. I was looking for it. Um, this person took this idea that uh, a couple of people, myself included, like mentioned it in passing in forums and things and made it like fully fleshed out. If you, I'll look up like Vormir, Color, Infinity War or something on Twitter and maybe you'll find it. 
But basically, in Infinity War, there's a clear color coding in the Vormir scene and before, where orange, which is tied to Gamora a lot, represents, like, love. Right? You see from Peter Quill's perspective in Nowhere, you see it when Thanos is looking at Gamora um, in Vormir. But then, also, that's coupled with a pairing, color pairing of purple, which is Thanos' color throughout the movie, which represents, like, despair, destruction, death, etc., and on Vormir, the closer he gets to sacrificing Gamora, the less orange you see, the more purple you see. And there's a very careful and effective color gradient of where they draw these distinctions and how. In Infinity or in Endgame, it was just like, it's a purple place. It's now it's, it's red here sometimes. And it didn't feel quite as careful or interesting. And the coloring to me, like on paper, I honestly don't like that Thanos and Gamora scene, but the coloring made it so, so, so effective to me. And I think that letting that, like, Letting that sort of like creative scene to scene coloring and design stuff kind of fall by the wayside is one of, I think, the weaker parts of this movie. Um, that's kind of emblematic of it, but it happens in other places too. That you don't have like this clear, the color tells the story or the cinematography tells the story stuff happening in this movie quite as much as you do in, in Infinity War or, uh, you know, some of my other favorites like Ragnarok or Black Panther or, or Captain Marvel or something. You mentioned before that in the Vormir scene, you dislike it because it's just woman sacrifices herself to for the story of the man, but they've always had a very platonic relationship. Surprisingly, Black Widow and Hulk, there's no resolution to their more romantic relationship in this movie. That's another one that kind of threw me for a loop that it just went nowhere. And in fact, Hulk in this movie also like is completely out of left field where he is at the end of Infinity War, like Banner's relationship with Hulk is very strained. And then all of a sudden, five years later, they're like, nope, we're just the same guy now with really no explanation that's satisfying. Yeah, there could have been a whole movie that ended with I'm Professor Hulk now. Hey, well, that, that movie could still come out. You never know. They might be making it, and it, it'll be another prequel. True. And actually, Matthew, what you just said about, about the Hulk and, and Johansson is actually, I think, another reason why I thought it would make so much sense for fucking Jeremy Arner to die there. Because it's like, he could close his arc by realizing that he never should have become a samurai murderer and die to bring his family back. And then she gets to, like, close her arc with Banner. Um, instead, she dies to clo- to push him further down an arc and doesn't get to close hers, which seems like a weird trade. Again, scene worked for me. It was totally effective. I love the action sequence of it. I was emotionally invested. But I think on paper you can sort of see how that scene could play differently and, and be as or more effective also. But, but already by the diner scene, you know that for five years they've, like, been in the same world together and haven't, you know, pursued that relationship at all. Yeah, totally. That's why you want her to, like, you know, survive and come back and then be, like, what, be alive at the end. And then it's like, hey. Like, I don't know, even just, like, them holding hands at the funeral or whatever. Right? Something like that could have been a nice note for, for that arc to play with. But they didn't. And that's their choice. And I think that's fine. Um, I just think that, you know, I I just don't like Hawkeye that much. And I think that, like, letting Black Widow survive would have been a little more interesting story choice. But it worked. So who gives a shit what I think? I don't make billion-dollar movies. I, I, yeah, I do think that the use of Hawkeye in this movie for somebody like me who has not seen all 22 films, but has seen most of them. I did not see Ant-Man and the Wasp. I did not see Captain Marvel. And I've only seen Infinity War once. So when the movie starts with this recapitulation of Hawkeye with his family and then he sees all of the all of them die, all of them kind of wither away. I thought it was a way to set the emotional stakes early and effectively while still including all the people who perhaps don't remember Infinity War as well. Oh, yeah. And Hawkeye was great in this movie. Um, like I said, I don't like Hawkeye the character, but this movie does a lot of character rehab for him because it's like the first time where they let Jeremy Renner act in one of the movies. 
and he's fucking kills it. He's incredible. He's a great yeah, fucking so performance good. from him, top to bottom, this in this movie. Um, yeah. And like again, you don't get that if he dies there. Like there are all these choices, whatever. It's fine. But I, I think that you're right, Jared. That Hawkeye and also Ant Man uh, work really well to for people who aren't as deep in the MCU as like me and Matthew to be able to get, like have a way into this movie. Um, and that Jeremy Renner and Paul Rudd just put on like fucking ace performances to make that work. And it's really impressive. It's really impressive that uh, that they can do that. And it's also a little bit of an indict on the Marvel people for like not using Jeremy Renner better. <laughs> I mean, yeah, but let's not forget this cast is fucking amazing. These actors yeah. are top, top fucking notch. It's amazing. Yeah. Which is why Renner um, stealing scenes is so crazy. Because like he's, well, a play- I think he's so that's one why Renner stealing scenes is so wild. He's playing across from like incredible performers in every scene, and he still like is like a magnet. Has he ever been bad in anything? I've only seen him kill it in most movies I've seen with him in. He's it. just boring in a lot of the other Avenger movies. Oh well, I just meant other move other Jeremy Renner movies that aren't in the MCU. Oh yeah, no, he murders it. He's a, he's as good. He's almost as good at acting as he's at flipping houses. <laughs> All right, let's talk about. So Lux mentioned how there was a distinction in how they treated color in infinity war versus an Endgame, and and briefly before we also talked about how they didn't really follow up on the moral philosophy so let's kind of dive into that a little bit so for a recap basically our reading of infinity war was that it as well as a lot of other superhero movies was about utilitarian consequentialism versus the ontology so the original movie was all about as captain america says we don't trade lives so the avengers wouldn't trade a single life to save a million unlike thanos who sacrificed gamora and believed that sacrificing half the population of the planet would provide a more peaceful world. We see smaller versions of this when Scarlet Witch tries to sacrifice Vision to save the universe, but it doesn't work out. Quill then tries to shoot Gamora, but it turns into bubbles. And then another time, Doctor Strange initially tells Spider-Man and Iron Man that he will let them die to save the Time Stone, but then at the end, Thanos is about to kill Tony, and Doctor Strange gives up the Time Stone because, again, we don't trade lives. As far as I can tell, the movie kind of throws all that to the side and favors a more sacrificial ethic. Tony sacrifices himself to kill Thanos. Natasha sacrifices herself to get the Soul Stone. It's a pretty standard final arc for heroes, whether it's Neo in Matrix Revolutions, Batman sort of in The Dark Knight Rises, or Vader in Return of the Jedi. My only beef with this, and I don't even think it's a beef, because once again, it worked. People felt it, and great. But it is the same arc that already happened in Avengers 1. The only difference is that Tony Stark just stays dead in this in this example. Well, I do think he has more to lose now that he is actually uh, has a family, he has a daughter, and he feels like he has done his duty as a hero. He feels like he has made that potential sacrifice time and again. And then that's why I think it's so important when he finally meets Howard Stark and Howard says to him, I have rarely let the greater good uh, interfere with my own personal happiness. Like he's put himself and his uh, happiness over the greater good. And Tony Stark, you know, he has that complicated relationship with his father. You know, he saw the argument, you know, before his father was killed by Bucky. Uh, so, first of all, to get that emotional response of, like, saying goodbye, but also to realize that he has grown past his father. He is, as much as he loves this man, a better man. He is a good man, and he not only is willing to make that greater sacrifice, he actually goes through with it. Uh, I do think is the fitting end to Tony Stark's character arc. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a really interesting distinction that the movie kind of low-key draws. Um, it's also a very Game of Thronesy distinction. 
which is that between people who are willing to sacrifice others versus sacrificing themselves, right? Like Thanos will sacrifice Gamora, you know, and also the rest of the universe, like you said, Jared, or half the rest of the universe or whatever. But Captain America's We Don't Trade Lies isn't saying I would because Captain America, he he dives in a grenade in the first movie, right? Like he'll trade his own life, but he won't manage and and trade other people's lives like resources. And that distinction of like what constitutes heroism is the ability is, is willing to sacrifice yourself. So like Matt's saying, Iron Man reaching that point again where he's like, I must sacrifice myself for everyone. There's no other move here, I think is like truly heroic and is contextualized a little more powerfully by the fact that Infinity War draws this distinction of like Thanos is bad because he sacrifices other people. We're good because we don't. Thanos is evil and we're heroic because we sacrifice ourselves. Well, the only thing I would say to that is that there is the point in the movie where Thanos sees the future projection of him getting his head cut off, and he's not phased by it. He just says that that's destiny. So he is okay with his own life being taken if his project is completed. Yeah, but his project is the unwilling sacrifice of a bunch of other people. <laughs> oh, sure. I'm just saying that, I don't know, maybe if he had seen in the future that when he snapped it would kill him, it could be argued that he would still do that as well. Yeah, I think so. But I just think that the the key distinction is his willingness to use other people as a resource versus the Avengers who won't. I think the real contrast isn't between Tony and Thanos. It's between Tony and Captain America, as always. And in Captain America's arc, you know, he's always, you know, steadfast in his fortitude. Like, you know, he absolutely, from the first frame, has been willing to give up his own life to be the soldier that does his duty. So finally, for him to admit, like, he's done that duty, he's served his country, he's served his universe, and now he gets to live a life. He gets to find some measure of happiness for himself. Uh, probably brings him, you know, full circle to where Tony kind of was. Uh, they're kind of like going past each other in their character arcs. Right, they kind of ended each other's starting points, which is nice. Or at least somewhat, to some degree, they ended each other's starting points. And I think that's, that's pretty pretty clever. I like the... The movie does do a really good job, and we haven't even gotten to like maybe the best example of this, of taking all the stuff these characters have been through and turning it into its own coherent sort of like meditation on those characters. And like I said, the best example we haven't gotten to yet is like Thor, for sure. Right? Yeah, the Thor, I have some thoughts on. So, Tony, his character arc starts in Iron Man 1 and ends here. It's like constant progression. Steve Rogers, he has no character arc. He's just like steadfast stalwart in who he is always. Thor is cyclical. He's always finding some character growth, and then there's something that puts him back down, puts him in a depression funk, you know, and then he has to relearn pretty much the same lessons. And it's the exact same thing in this movie again, which it works for him. Like, he's a Norse god. That cyclicality is fitting. The one thing I think they could have done without, because I love that he's a frat bro. I love that like he's just <laughs> playing video games, growing out the long beard. I don't need, think they needed the fat suit. It, oh, it looked, fuck that, dude. Fuck that oh, dude, all that, the way. That, that fat suit whipped so, so funny. much ass. Yeah, I, I do agree with Lux. I thought that was so funny. It wasn't as funny. It was great because, like, right, the the, the Thor narrative, you're right, it's, it's cyclical. It's this sort of classic what they call Hegelian screenwriting. The character, as they approach their need, get rewarded, and as they betray that need, trade that need for want, they get punished. And that's what happens to Thor. The more he sort of learns that like his understanding of what ruling and leadership is is wrong and backwards the more good things happen to him when he has it when he's doing the sort of like classic odin king style ruling things go badly for him and when he understands himself as like the center of the story it's bad when he understands that he's part of a bigger thing it's good and he gets back and forth it's really good and i think making him fat and taking him 
uh, aside from making it more relatable to me personally, it makes him it, it deinvests a lot of like the extra power and fullness that they put into him in Infinity War in a way that like makes sense. That like this is his way of coping with the trauma is he can't be the warrior he was anymore in the same way. And to physically represent that with the fat suit is a a great gag and b I think a really strong thing that like sets him up to like become this newer character he is, which is like this sort of like uh like leader in the sense of like being a charismatic goof but not in terms of like being a lead by example kind of guy which i think is good and i think it's smart and i think it's interesting and i think it super duper works um for thor and for me and i think it's it's nice i don't know it's a cool i thought it was a cool choice to just like why does he there's no he's no longer the warrior archetype so why do we need to like have him be six-pack jack you know what i mean i am personally hoping he's more of the pirate angel uh from Infinity War come Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. I like my superheroes very aspirational. I want to see Chris Hemsworth like, man, yeah, I can hit the gym more and get close to that someday. Hey, as a funny fat guy, there's nothing not aspirational about seeing funny fat guys on screen. Um, <laughs> I'll tell you that right now. It's a matter of perspective. But the other thing with Thor that's really fun, I think, and really cool is I think that Thor, like... Not just making him fat, but just doing his whole arc, getting him towards the outer space stuff, I think is just so much better for that character than being on Earth. Like, he's so much more of a Jack Kirby character than a Stan Lee character to me. And they sort of drawn the distinction by, like, where they put them in, like, the firmament, literally speaking. And I think it's good for Thor to get more close to outer space and get away from the sort of terrestrial concerns and more into just being, like, weird outer space fat guy. Yeah, as we've seen in both Thor Ragnarok and in uh, Infinity War. Yeah, totally. He's just so much better in, in that in that zone. And like I like I like Avenging Pirate Angel Thor, and I don't see why it's not possible for that to come back. But one thing that the MCU does, it's a thing they do that is very much comic books and is very much a thing they shouldn't be able to pull off, but they do, is just like shift the power levels of who's the best Avenger movie to movie by like mixing things up. Like in the first one it's the Hulk, and then later like Iron Man maybe is the best strongest one, and then it's like Thor and Infinity War, but now it's Captain America. And making Thor fat was just part of their ability to realistically, like, recalibrate power positions within the team. And I think that's a cool way of – they do a good job of recalibrating that so they can focus on different characters at different times in a way that, like, stays compelling. Because if the same guy is just the toughest Avenger every movie, it's like, well, there's a way for that guy to show up. Unless it's Captain Marvel, who they keep off screen mostly. I was about to ask because Kevin Feige said, like, Captain Marvel is the toughest. Do you think she was underutilized here? Because I think a lot of people, myself included, expected a lot more screen time for Brie Larson. And she really just kind of comes in at the tail end of the movie. Um, for me, it's I'm torn. I think Brie Larson's one of the best working actresses, period. Uh, she's done some shit that blows my mind. Uh, I love having her on screen. She's incredible. But I think it's smart. I think it's smart to keep your mega-powered character off screen, except for when you really need her. Like, because her presence being so powerful de-justifies a lot of the other drama. And so I think that it's like, it's smart to just, like, they had to build an excuse Look, a lot of other planets are having a bad time. I'm going to go help yeah, they them. Said that I'm super twice. powerful. <laughs> I'll come back when you guys need me to be cool, and then I'll be cool and do something super duper sweet, and then everyone else can do some cool stuff. Yeah, I mean, I I didn't see Captain Marvel, but I agree. It seemed like she was extremely overpowered, and 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 you know, I jokingly said, yeah, they said twice that hey, there's other stuff going on in the galaxy. That's justification why I can't be there. I don't think it needs to be anything more than that. That's enough justification. And you're right, Lux. Like, they probably just kept her out so that things could be dramatized a bit more because she would immediately fix a lot of problems. Yeah, and, like, like that that's the problem. That girl power moment they had was awesome. I loved that. I thought that was, like, a nice little nod to, like, 
you know, just hey, yeah. when did what? When uh, you know, so I've only seen all the Marvel movies I've seen. I've only seen once. When did Pepper Potts start going around in an Iron Man suit? When did that happen? Iron Man. So 30? that was well. Also, okay. that was the uh, anniversary gift that he was making for her that Morgan yeah. found in the garage. They set that up earlier in the first act. Yeah. Oh. Okay. Um, it's going back to Iron Man. 3. But then, yeah, like that. That like girl power moment was super sweet. But the thing about it was like she didn't fucking need their help. <laughs> like. She's like, I oh. gotta get over here, and then all the women show up. And they're like, and we'll help. And then she's like, now I'm a laser beam. I'm just destroying everything, and now I'm over there. Like you guys didn't need to really help out. It kind of undercut. Well, what I thought was a really powerful, fun moment. And like, you know, even if it's just what happened in my theater was they did that, and you hear a couple of like little girls in the theater like cheer out loud, you know. And even if that's all it gets, that's worth it. But same time, it kind of undercut itself. It's like she doesn't need fucking help. She's like a living laser beam. <laughs> Yeah, and, and right there, before that, they had another great girl power moment when Scarlet Witch got to have her confrontation with Thanos, and she like really seemed to be taking him on one on one, just like at the end of Infinity War. Uh, that was a good callback to that. Yeah, for w- sure. Were you su- were you surprised that she never even entered into a discussion on whether or not they should or could bring Vision back? I think that'll probably get addressed when they do the Scarlet Witch and Vision TV show. I haven't heard if that's going to be set in the past or if that's going to be set in the present. Uh, I'm sure we'll figure more out about that. I know they definitely set up the Loki TV show. Big uh, time. Yeah, that that was a very obvious uh, setup there where yeah. he gets the Tesseract. Yeah, no, Loki warped straight out of the uh, lobby of Stark Tower and onto Disney+. Plus. Um, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Uh, which is, you know, a profitable choice for, for, our, for our Norse friend. So the other TV show, Bucky and Falcon, obviously Falcon is going to be the new Captain America. Do you think that made a lot of narrative sense? Because Bucky seems to have been Captain America's best friend all of his life. So for Sebastian Shaw to say to uh, Anthony, like, hey, why don't you be the one to go over there and, you know, say hi to Steve? Uh, just kind of came out of left field for me. I would have expected... Winter Soldier to take on the mantle, which both of them have in the comics, of course. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's like, it works like this. A, I've said this before, I think that Black Captain America is like one of the most fascinating possible comic book characters. I have no idea if the MCU will investigate the reasons why it's fascinating. Odds are they probably won't because that's pretty touch and go territory. But it's an extremely fascinating character. Um, so I'm pro that. And I also think that like, you're right that Bucky's been Captain America's best friend his whole life. But Bucky was frozen then crazy and evil, then just in Wakanda, and hasn't been around for a lot of this stuff, hasn't proven his, like, ability to deal with, like, the big Captain America-scale problems at all. I mean, in this movie, all he does is just shoot a gun. True, yeah. In, like, the most hilariously misplaced moment of all time. The same thing happened in Justice League, and it makes me laugh every time when, like, there's this huge superpower fight and someone just has a gun. And he does that, and so it's like Falcon just seems more qualified for the job to me than Bucky. Like, Bucky hasn't really earned the position within the MCU narrative in the same way. But I think either one could have worked for me. I'm happy that it's Falcon because I really want to, like, I, I, Black Captain America is so interesting to me. Just because of, like, you know, history. Yeah, I'll be there for day one of Disney Plus watching the show either way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. Me too. It's another streaming service I got to add to the ever, ever never-ending roster. I got to say, since I'm not on the up and up on a lot of those announced Marvel shows on Disney Plus, it was very tastefully done in how to tease out these TV shows if I was able to watch the movie, get a sense of conclusion, and not even be aware of how they're going to continue it. I was definitely a little bit worried that both Star Wars and Avengers would essentially end with a big old grandiose, see more at Disney Plus. But 
that didn't happen. I think what you guys are describing seems to me like they did it very tastefully. No, they did it really smart. And I love that there was no end credit stinger, that they like let it have that sense of finality with just like the sound effect of Tony Stark making the suit as the only audio and the credits at the end. Agreed. Which isn't to say, like, I haven't already started speculating as to phase four, five, six, and half yeah, the course. internet as well. Yeah. yeah, how could you How could you not? But, like, it was as good. Like, it felt final in the moment. Then I walked out of the theater and I was like, man, I wonder what the Guardians are going to do. Uh, <laughs> but, like, in the moment it felt final. Like, that's really, that's that seems right to me. Agreed. We are the real Brady Bros. Brady Brothers from the TV show Brady Bunch. I'm Barry Williams. And I'm Christopher Knight. I played Greg. And uh, who were you again? I played Peter. We've decided that we're going to do a podcast around episodes of the Brady Bunch. We're going to use it as a prism to look back to our experience doing the show and why the Brady Bunch is still popular. Have a sunshine day. We are the real Brady Bros. So one thing that, by the way, if you guys want to bring up any other specific characters, please go ahead. The one thing I want to bring up, and we can get through this quickly, is one thing that I personally just am really into is post-apocalypse world building. And I thought there was a great opportunity here, and I was a little bit disappointed. I mean, for my money, the best representation of a fully lived post-apocalypse is in the movie Akira. And I wanted to see more about – because right now in – in Endgame, we get a vision of Earth after Thanos that is just kind of desolate, just kind of there's a lot of destruction. We see a lot of gravestones and memorials, but I really think that they could have done a little bit more just to show the utter chaos. Like, I wanted to see Thanos cults, Thanos religions. I wanted to see governments being torn apart. I wanted to see reactionary forces over-militarizing in response. I wanted to see signs of a new economy. I wanted to see evil people capitalizing on the chaos. Um but that's maybe just my personal desires. Because I think that Marvel presents the leftovers. I guess, yeah. But it really just seemed almost unnaturally desolate. Like it really was that just half the people died and now everyone is just in a state of depression. And that's the only real difference. And there's that one line from Captain America where he says something like, oh, you know, the water's cleaner now, and there are more... Sh- or, or What does he say to... Um, There's a uh, pot of whales in the Hudson. Right. And she's like, oh, don't try and justify it. I wish there was more to grab onto to what the world looks like after Thanos, other than everyone is just sad. So I've been playing a lot of The Division 2 since it came out, and that's a much smaller percentage of the population that dies, and I find that to be a much more realistic breakdown of society and in my personal headcanon for the MCU, that's exactly how everything plays out for the first year and a half after. And maybe five years is enough time for them to start piecing society back together. But uh, yeah, I completely agree that it is not a very apocalyptic post-apocalypse. I also think the Avengers have work to do. I mean, maybe not the kind of work that Jeremy Renner is doing, but I would imagine that like the shit is fucked up after even five years after an event like that, that they're not going to be able to just retire into the woods because they've been unilaterally defeated. I mean, I can't even imagine the chaos that would come from that that needs them to promote order. But, right, like, you know, it's it's a plot device. It would be a much worse movie if they spent any more time than they already did on it. So I'm not knocking them too much for that. But I would have just loved some subtle hints because even in Acura, 
There's no exposition scene that explains all these different factions. You just see them in the background, and it gives a very lived-in full world. Right. Like, the thing the thing about the, the Infinity War snap that has always bugged me a little bit is very related to this, which is, like, even if Thanos' argument is true that we half the people would be a sustainable amount of people to live on the Earth, the way we've structured society and, like, technology and stuff depends on there being a lot more people than that. So, like, when he snaps his fingers, like, what happens if, like, the water regulation guy at the Hoover Dam disappears and no one's checking water flow and it breaks? Or, like, the guy who, like, maintains, like, rad levels outside of a Three Mile Island type situation. You know what I mean? Like, there are people in places who stop disasters from happening every day just by being there and making sure things are working right. And if they just disappear, things not working right, it's a lot worse than just, like, it's empty streets. <laughs> Yeah, I would love to see Infinity War 1.5, where we actually see what happens in those five years. That's I think that Kingdom would be Hearts fascinating. Expansion. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, I would too. That's actually, I made that crack about you wanting Marvel's leftovers, but now I also kind of want Marvel Presents the Leftovers. That sounds kind of totally rad. Yeah, I would totally dig that. Um, so... Last thing I wanted to bring up before we go into the mailbag, on the nature of fan service, and I feel like I should just hand this over to Lux because I, too, and you can even bring this into another show that is nearing its end right now, Game of Thrones, how people keep on throwing around the words fan service to kind of undercut what most people just assume would be the ending because that's exactly where all the emotional arcs are pointing to, and now when they get it, it's like, okay, they're just kind of doing wish fulfillment, essentially. But, you know, in the back of my mind, I'm always like, yeah, but remember what happened with Mass Effect 3? Nobody wants to take any big chances anymore. Nobody wants to have people on Twitter threaten their kids if they don't like the ending. People are just keeping it safe these days, and I think people are appreciating it. Yeah, well, Mass Effect 3 is a really good example of this, right? Because Mass Effect 3, I love that ending, defended it endlessly, I think, both in individual chats to both of you, as well as within our group chat, as well as in our Discord, as well as publicly a lot of times. Um, I think it's basically perfect, but it's also earned and set up throughout the sh- throughout the narrative, but sort of in the periphery of what's actually happening. So it's a really cool, clever little twist. Um, and people want endings like that, where the end is, you know, this thing that's been seeded, but never really set up. And then it deviates. And we're like, oh my God, the thing happened. But A, that's really hard to do. And B, that's rarely actually satisfying. And so right. what people say is fan service, a lot of the time is just like the setups paying out the thing they're setting up um there's a difference right like uh for instance like in game of thrones people were like i'm not going to talk about last night's episode because i don't want to spoil it for y'all if you haven't seen it but two episodes ago uh like there's like jamie knight's brand everyone was like oh fan service it's like the fuck are you talking about for five seasons this has been like the clear end point of this relationship it's not fan service to conclude and give a cathartic ending. The point of stories is to give a cathartic and satisfying ending and to set those things up. So when they get there, you know, they're happening. You can enjoy it. Um, in a piece of writing about wrestling, I did once, I explained that the reason why Stone Cold Steve Austin would get so popular or one part of it is that the Stone Cold stunner is a perfect finisher because he does a move to set it up. So as soon as he sets it up, you know, what's coming. So you have a beat to be like, Oh hell yeah, the thing's going to happen. And then it does. Um, and that's how story should work. And so this fan service complaint and there is a litany of fan service that exists in the world. Don't get me wrong. There's a lot of like forced, easy out, like moments that are just like to pop an audience, whatever. But this isn't that. And I also don't think that's true of the latest Game of Thrones episode either. I think those critiques call it fall flat because they're setups and their arcs and their characters that are doing things that they've been sort of set up and trained to do. Um, that's not 
a Forrester deviant from the nature of the narratives. It's it's internal to it. And I think that the problem with the fan service critique is that it demands shitty writing. <laughs> like that's what I, that's I, what they want. I, I agree. Most most of what you're saying, do you think that there's any particular scene that is fan servicey where you would agree with those critiques? Um, you could make the argument that the girl power scene's a little fan servicey, but I think that's fan service to a good social end, so I don't care. Maybe some of the early stuff that you were pointing out when we started talking about sort of the slower intro moments was a little bit of that, but not there was nothing particularly like forced in the movie, I thought. I thought it all felt, for three hours of stuff, it all felt stri- strikingly organic. Um, at least yeah. to me, at least to me. Um, but you know, like there's always weird little things. I mean the, honestly, like the hail Hydra in the elevator that like the guy in Jared's theater laughed at was like pretty, um, this one's for you guys. Well, um, as a fan, I felt very <laughs> serviced by that one. I felt yeah. that was the funniest I mean, me, moment in the movie. Me too. I loved it. Um, but it was very fan service. I, I just think that like that critique was like the idea the Marvel movies existing period is the greatest act of quote unquote fan service to ever happen. <laughs> Like, or the fact that they're serialized to the extent that they are. Yeah, yeah. It's it's you. If you if you think fan service is bad, you're not allowed to watch. Like you're, you're you. It's logically consistent that you enjoy the movies. Um, they're great. I love them, but they're very much catering to a specific type of fan, to a specific type of story, and they're trying to make those people happy because that's what they're for, and that's fine. That's cool. That's good. Even better than fine. But it's it's not fair to be like, I want movies that show me the things I like and are cool and exciting but I don't want them to have endings that are coherent with the beginning. Like that's well, yeah, because I think fucking people, crazy. Well, people want endings that will surprise them because, and this is kind of goes to the first game of Thrones video that you wrote for us, Lux. It kind of goes to, I've been watching a show for X amount of seasons. I'm talking about game of Thrones now, but it can also apply to Endgame, where I've been surprised many times throughout. And then I expect to have a similar, perhaps even, even heightened experience when I see the ending. And I think you're right. I think that right now people are realizing that you think you want to be surprised by the ending, but you really don't. People much prefer to just have everything emotionally lay out as it was intent or as it was pointing to. And then if you just try and, give people a hard right turn that's going to blow them out of their seats, probably chances are it's going to disappoint or piss people off. Right. Like we all saw what happened to M. Night Shyamalan. Like, is that what we want? I actually would say that, you know, the best movies are the ones that, you know, do surprise in a way that is still logically consistent with the rest of the, like La La Land. I was very surprised. And I think most people were when they don't get together at the end and you find out it's not a love story about the love of two people for each other. It's a love story about each person for their career, but that is set up logically from the whole rest of the film. That's what the argument of the film is. And yet it still feels like a right turn. It's surprising and fitting at the same time. If Avengers uh, Endgame could have done something like that, would it have been just as good? Maybe better? Maybe. But see, the thing is, this well, is the I, thing. No, is you I, actually I disagree. hit the I... point of, you, you, you nailed something very fundamental here, which is that the reason La La Land and a lot of things like it are right turns or left turns or whatever direction we want to turn is that... They're standalone you, films. You, you, you project it onto it. Like, you're like, this is this kind of movie as you're watching it. And then the movie reveals itself to not be that kind of movie, to be a different kind of movie, which is a classic sort of cinematic trick. But that's the role of the audience, right? The audience does that work for the movie. Um, and the movie in turn makes the audience do that work because it's a well-written movie or whatever. I mean, I don't love La La Land, but it's, it's a good example of what we're talking about. I would argue that standalone films afford strength and ending, whereas serialized narratives 
don't. Uh, in fact, in the Scott Pilgrim podcast, we were talking briefly about an article I wrote about how a lot of storytelling today is the strength is in the extended middle. And I would argue that this is another is more evidence of that. And I think serialized narratives use the end to neatly wrap up all the emotional arcs and just not fuck it up. I really think that standalone films, including La La Land, including The Dark Knight, they afford strength in ending. Whereas if you do it with a serialized narrative, whether it's a TV show or films that connect, it's probably not a good idea. So I so avoid spoilers that when I went into Infinity War... Uh, I didn't know that there was an Avengers 4 coming out a year later initially. It was my expectation. This is wrapping everything up. And so it seems like that the arc was going to be, okay, Thanos is going to get almost all the stones and it's going to be a last-minute catastrophe when they finally stop him, that it is going to allow for this heroic moment at the end. So that is a right turn at the end of that film if you don't know the meta of the movies coming out from Disney, that the villain wins at the end. Like, that is a potential surprise and yet narratively fitting with that movie also. But it's not the end. It's not the end, though. I mean, I I don't know when exactly it was announced that there was going to be Avengers 4, but I feel like even though I didn't hear that from the mouth of Disney, I knew that it wasn't. Yeah, and I think that, like, the the comparison to to make here, right, is that, like, the Avengers Infinity War is, like, the Two Towers or uh, Empire Strikes Back of the series. Like, it has room to play with those turns and stuff, precisely because, like Jared said, it's the extended middle. Um, And I think that most stories, even standalones, need to have an ending that coheres to some element of the beginning. Like you said with La La Land, it's a really good example. It does that, but in a way that is not the way that you expect it to. That's great. That's great writing. That's great filmmaking. But that's not necessary to have great writing, great filmmaking. It can't just be one-to-one. And that's why this fan service thing bums me out so bad. But... I think that in the middles, like you're saying, like in your Empire Strikes Back and your Infinity Wars and your Two Towers, you can go in all kinds of crazy directions because you know that arcs aren't ending there. So there's no natural end point. So everything in the middle is like free for all. That's fun and games as a fucking say the cat guy would say. All right, guys, if you guys don't have anything else to bring up, I want to get into the mailbag because I know Matthew has to go to work. True. Yeah, I can be a little late. I need to write the uh, Wisecrack edition or finish writing one. So. So anyway, we're going to go through the voicemails. Give us a call at 213-534-8807 or 21-ELF-GUT-07. Let's see here. We've got... Let's go with this one. Hey, guys. I'm a huge fan of the show. My name is Landry, and I just heard the Scott Pilgrim episode of Show Me the Meaning. And I had a couple of observations. Uh, Jared, you talked about how you thought that the plot as seen through the hero's journey narrative surrounding Scott was a little shallow. I'd like to argue it because um, you say that he doesn't grow as a person at all, but if you look at the entire movie and the boss battles and everything through the lens of his relationships with the people around him, especially with women, you really begin to see that a lot of the things that happen around his life is because he tends to have kind of low self-esteem. So the entire reason that he's fighting the exes is because uh, he's trying to get the girl. But he and Ramona start dating after the first boss battle, so why does he continue fighting? If you look at a lot of his past relationships, um, you can see kind of he's the kind of person who's always trying to, quote-unquote, get the girl, 
because he thinks that's going to make him happy, but he can never hold on to the girl. So I think going through all of the boss battles is him trying to hold on to the girl, but kind of going the wrong way around it. You can see in the last boss battle with Gideon, um, he's not able to defeat him through the, gaining the power of love, but with the power of self-respect. So once he gets past those demons, is able to look at himself in more of a subjective manner and take responsibility for his actions. Then he's able to do what he has to do to keep the girl. And that's kind of further seen in his fight with Negascott, or really his non-fight. Because at that point, he has gained the self-respect that he can look at his demons objectively and face them in a kind of adult way. Because you see that they don't actually fight, they're just having a conversation. And they kind of part friends. So that's all I had to say. Thank you so much for listening. Y'all have a good one. All right. Thanks, Landry. I got so many awesome emails of people talking about how they're reading Scott Pilgrim and how the narrative functions, and a lot of them have been really insightful. And this just makes me love the movie that much more uh, because, and I, it makes me really want to watch it again because I don't know if you guys listen, but the last time, I, most recent time I watched it, which was for the podcast, I had a very underwhelming viewing experience, which was unnerving because I remember liking the movie a lot on the first run through, but. I think that Landry's read is totally viable, and we got some other ones that if we have time, I'll go through, but I don't know. What do you guys think about the, about Scott Pilgrim? Have you guys seen it? Yeah, one of my favorite movies of all time, and I think oh, Landry awesome. is not only right, but it explains why the movie ending is better than the comic book ending, where he ends up with Ramona in the movie ending, and that is because he has successfully held on to this one, unlike uh, Ivy, or Envy, rather, uh, in the past, like... Yeah, so that is a good reading of it. Yeah, I mean, it's fine. I don't know. I don't love that movie. I think it's okay. It's Have, you, have either of fine. you read the graphic novel? Yeah, the graphic novel's, like, better. I just, like, I don't know. There's, it's, it's cool. The conceit is interesting. It's executed well at times. A lot of times it's not. I think Landry's right that it's the story of, of sort of gaining self-respect. I think that it also has some weird elements that just make me feel kind of good. And also, I just don't know if the storytelling is as clean as it could be. Um, and by I don't know if it's as clean as it could be, I mean, I know that it's not. Um, and, like, I don't know. I think you're right. Like, I think Landry's read is spot on. Like, that's the point of the story, right, is to learn that, like, he has to learn that he's not defined by these exes or by the person he's with, but rather just by himself. Um, that's a good lesson. That's cool. Um, I just, you know, the story's about, like, the thing you need to learn to get the girl are just sort of like meh, jack off throw up. See, for me, like I've always got one foot in reality and one foot in fantasy. Like, so Scott Pilgrim strikes me as very realistic in that sense. It's how real life feels, how things work in your mind rather than they work in the objective world outside of you. Oh yeah. No, that's why I like the conceit. And like, trust me, I empathize. I have a schizoaffective disorder and I literally see cartoons sometimes when I don't take my medication. Um, I empathize, <laughs> I empathize strongly with that, but it just, to me is like, you know, I mean, you guys, you've all heard me say this. This is not, this is old news. I just like stories about like how nerdy white guy can actually be cool now are just not, just don't do it for me. Just never. Well, that's a story of my life. So don't ever read my autobiography. Well, my, I think mine, my, I think that's why it doesn't do it for me too. Cause like mine too. And I'm just like, I lived it. Like, I don't, it's fine. <laughs> I'm good. I'd rather see a big shark. All right, we're going to do one more. This is from Anonymous about Inglorious Bastards, which Lux was on. Hey, guys, love your show. Um, I was just listening to the Inglorious Bastards podcast on uh, Show Me the Meaning. This may be a little late, but 
I was going to mention, somebody mentioned um, Archie's accent as being over-the-top English or like the quote-unquote Queen's English. Actually, if you listen to um, recordings of people's voices at the time, especially educated people, that's actually a subtle accent. It could have been so much more over the top. If you listen to recordings of C.S. Lewis at the time, um, and he's Irish, his is so much more pronounced than that. So I was just going to say, especially among educated English people, that accent was actually pretty subtle. Thank you. Very cool. Yeah, I, I mean, did not know we're that. We're not educated <laughs> English people. We're barely educated. We're not American. educated English people at all. Um, all right. So I had one more voicemail from Luke, which was really great, but it also overlaps with this email that I got from Christian. So I'm just going to read Christian's email, but thank you guys for uh, sending in these voicemails. There are a whole bunch of them I didn't get to get to today, but continue to send them in and we'll continue to play them on the air. We might even do a bonus episode where we just do all the voicemails we haven't read on, uh, we haven't listened to on air yet. So once again, it's 213-534-8807. So this mailbag question is from Christian. He says, I've listened to your podcast since the day you announced, and I've really enjoyed hearing you guys expound on movies in ways that uh, let me learn. Uh, ever since you guys put out the podcast on Starship Troopers and Behind the Curve, I've had some conflicting thoughts on, on authorial intent. So my thoughts are as follows. It seems like the intent of the author gets held to different standards depending on what kind of message the author portrays. When interpreting Starship Troopers, I could argue the movie is obviously a satire and it isn't the job of the author to force the viewer to see that. If the audience is too dumb, it isn't on the author. The author isn't held liable for the audience's lack of understanding of ideas portrayed by the text. Conversely, when someone consumes persuasive media or YouTube propaganda like Flat Earth or anti-vax content, I might argue the author is purposefully misleading the audience. They are taking advantage of the audience and are to blame for the problems created by the text and that the author should be held liable because the text is preying on the audience's lack of critical thinking. It seems that I feel author's intent only matters when I agree with the ideas portrayed in the text. What do you guys think? So this is something we talk about a lot at Wisecrack. In fact, so we talked about it a little bit on the Banksy video when we talk about Bart and the death of the author and stuff like that. But right now, uh, Rebecca, who was on the Interstellar podcast, her and I are trying to crack a video talking about this very phenomenon in a way that's divorced from Roland Bart because we already talked about it. But there's no easy answer here. I mean, when we right now, well, I'll say early days of Wisecrack, I was pure death of the author, don't give a shit about the author's intent, and now I'm kind of on a tightrope and I'm always balancing the two because I don't entirely believe that the author is dead, and you just have to have this responsible balance between the two. I don't really know <laughs> what else to say. What do you think, guys? The People don't... There's a big misunderstanding of the death of the author. It's an aesthetic and literary convention, not a moral or political one. Like... He, what you decide to take out of the text, yeah, the author doesn't infringe on that, but the author putting specific coded ideas or specifically central ideas into the text is a choice the author made, and so there is a political and moral component in the sense of, like, someone made this choice. You don't erase that because that's not part of your, like, aesthetic analysis of the text. Like, that's still there, right? Like, for instance, like, I like to read Heidegger. No, Heidegger's a bad example. Um... Eh, fuck it. Heidegger's a fine example. No, that's a, that's a good example. Heidegger's a fine example. I like to read Heidegger. Um, I think he's really smart. I think he's a lot of cool shit to say. I also think he's responsible for a lot of ways in which people talk about the Holocaust very badly. Um, I think that he's responsible for that. As in, like, he put those words into the world. That's his responsibility. 
It's not his responsibility necessarily what each individual person does with that, but it's I don't have like I don't have to think about Heidegger when I'm reading Heidegger as text. I do think about Heidegger when I read about people comparing killing Jews to shucking corn, right? Because that's what Heidegger did. Like that's that's the distinction, right? Like the, you, the author and the things they say have an impact, and you have to be able to say like it's you have some responsibility for saying, you know, um, writing this book about like uh, whatever. You you have some responsibility for the moral and political position your text is in. You don't have responsibility for the aesthetic assessment of that text because that's just a different thing. And when I aesthetic aestheticizing and literarily engaging with the text, the author's background is usually secondary, and this was a very clearly stated goal. But when engaging with the role of the text within a broader political framework, you have to engage with the author's position because that's what dictates the politics of the text. So even within the work of a fiction, I think, knowing the author's biographic details and their other fictional writings is definitely uh, informative uh, and helps inform your interpretation of that. Uh, some of the videos I've done for Wisecrack are the philosophy of Alan Moore, Grant Morrison, Tolkien. And for all of those, like their or biographical details really do come in clearly in some of those writings. And in other cases, some of their other fiction uh, is echoed. And if you're not reading all of their texts, you're not getting the full picture of what they're trying to say in any given text. Right. Well, there's also that question that you're, that you're sort of raising about intertextuality at this point, right? Like, when they intend for an intertextual reading, what's your obligation to that? And I think, again, that's this question of, like, book in a vacuum versus book in a network, if that makes sense. Like, not even intertextual in that they expect you to read the. It just it gives you a broader perspective of their philosophy, and so we're not where they're not being as subtle or nuanced in one particular case. You can kind of fill in the details, right? And that's what gets what I was talking about, right? Like, like as you said, it's their personal philosophy. So when you're engaging with the politics, political positioning of the author, you sort of have to account for that kind of stuff. But if you're just reading the Invisibles to read the Invisibles, and you're just sort of like engaging with it purely aesthetically, the author's position doesn't matter so much. To, to your interpretation per se, unless you choose to engage with that sort of next level of analysis. Um, and I think that a lot of people are just like, death of the author, author doesn't matter. And it's like, no, of, co <laughs> like, of course the author fucking matters. He's not literally dead. It's just that I can analyze a text and draw from it what I want to without the author's goal for the text being the thing I have to analyze. Okay, so but based on what you're saying, I want to make exist. kind of a, a contrast to what Christian is saying. So Christian is talking about how on the other side, he cares about authorial intent when a flat earther propaganda video is creating what is it intended to. But I think the more interesting counterpoint to that is, let's say somebody watches The Matrix and they walk away from that movie saying, oh, duh, the red pill is a symbol for how the fact that we've all been lied to that the earth is round and the earth is actually flat. What do you do in that scenario? <laughs> um, because that's, I mean, I mean that, that's like, you know, the, the red pill is a term that has been coined by a particular political movement. And I think that once again, you could obviously look at drawing from certainly biographical information from the Wachowskis and suggest that is not what they're going for, obviously. But you could still read it like that. And then there was in the, in the Flat Earth documentary, there was that other part we were talking about where the guy whips out a copy in 1984 and he's like, you got to read this because it is essential to understanding Flat Earth. Not to say that he thinks George Orwell was talking about Flat Earth, but that these texts can basically be used as a transparency, as an overlay for various things that they weren't talking about. And is that an issue? Well, right. That's the thing. If you're going to say that's my, it is an issue, right? Because this is where people use death of the author as an excuse to be dumb. 
Um, like for instance, it, you can't just say I watched the Matrix. There was a red pill in it. It showed them reality. The reality that they were talking about when they made the Matrix was this. If you're going to assert what they meant when they made the Matrix, you have to know who they are. And if you know who they are, you know it certainly isn't what people think it is, right? Well, even if they're not arguing that that's what the Wachowskis meant, but it revealed to me such and such truth. Right. And But, like, sure. And that's – I guess that's allowed. But I feel like – I mean, look, to be totally frank, that particular interpretation is so vastly extratextual. Well, look, oh, oh, I, oh, sure. But I, that's the thing, though. It's like then that's, the, that's where this question becomes tricky is, like, I guess that's what Christian is basically asking is how much extratextuality do you bring to these kind of analyses? And I really think that, like – if I'm asking, how do I interpret a text for me? What does it mean to me? Author doesn't fucking matter. If I'm interpreting how a text works as informing a project or informing a broader network of things or informing a political position or whatever, um, then I sort of think you have to account for the author. I don't think you, right. can, you can ignore that. Like, that's the thing is, like, you – in both cases, and I think that uh, – this is where I disagree with Christian. I think that in both cases, in both with regards to Verhoeven and with regards to – the flat earth guys, like in both cases, if you want to say this is a satire that's critical of fascism, you have to know where Verhoeven's coming from with that to a certain degree. If you're going to like situate it politically, and with the flat earth people, if they're if you're going to say that like they're if you think that they're intentionally misleading the audience or whatever, like you have to make that same critique there. But if you're just looking at these things aesthetically, then like who fucking gives? I don't care. It's not exactly death of the author, but the whole hermeneutical principle of like. I'm just going to read my Bible without any historical context or like that has led to a lot of different, uh, you know, heterodox and heretical and, you know, bad theology. Like, you know, so in that context, I know uh, it's proven strange and problematic as well. Not that I'm as invested in that anymore after dropping out of seminary and leaving, but I, I still engage in that culture a lot. And I'm like, no, like context, you know, matters. Arthurial intent still matters. Like you do have to go back to that if you want to understand where someone's coming from. Where I would say we should treat death of the author as absolute gospel is with uh, J.K. Rowling and the Harry Potter. Like just ignore all the yes. tweets. Like just yes. read those texts. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. No, totally. I think, I think you're clear that you can ignore it in the sense of like, or you can you can abide by death of the author. And it's really helpful to abide by death of the author sometimes because that's what allows you to see what the – so, okay – the reason why the death of the author is really cool to me is because Freud talks about how writing brings out unconscious anxieties, right? That the author harps on ideas, even without thinking about them, that reveal certain textual or like certain internal anxieties. What the death of the author does is takes the author's consciousness out of the text in such a way that those anxieties become clearer to you. And that can influence the way the text works, what it means, what it does. Um, that's cool as shit. Um, what I don't think it means is that you can look at uh, Starship Troopers and be like, I think everyone should have a gun. Um, that's like a different kind of jump entirely. And, and another thing, and this is uh, my next video gets into this a little bit, uh, trying to use a text in order to glean biographical details about the author, like a fictional text in order to say, oh, this must be the personality of the person that wrote it. I think that is a wrong way of going about things. I agree with that. All right, guys, Matthew's got to get to work. So we're going to go ahead and wrap it up today. Give us a call. It is uh, three... T Wait, shit, I already forgot what it is. Three, two, three... Fuck, whatever, I said it earlier. All right, uh, where can we find you guys on the internet? Lux. All over the damn place. Obviously, Wisecrack, I direct a lot of the videos. Um, so there is a good one. Um, also, Party World Wrestling on Facebook. Uh, we're about to start kicking stuff off over there. And obviously, there's the Game Boys podcast. Uh, 
which Jared and Matthew have both been on fairly recently, so check that out. And you can find me on Twitter at ML Surfboard, and the podcast is at Game Boys Pod on Instagram. You can find me, of course, on Wisecracked, uh, on Twitter at Matt J. Therio, uh, that's T-H-E-R-I-A-U-L-T, and at the HubCityReview.com. Cool. All right, guys, we will see you next time. Thanks for listening. Peace. <laughs>